The following is a production of Art Trap Productions, brought to you by the Gallifrey Embassy and has been made possible by supporting subscribers and donations from listeners like you. This episode brought to you by Pachak Supporting Subscribers. Go to arttrap.com slash Pachak Supporter to become a supporting subscriber. Support the show and get extra content and other bonuses. This episode brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download at audibletrial.com slash Pachak. Over 85,000 titles to choose from for your iPod or MP3 player. This episode also supported by the Pachak Podcast Companion app for the iPhone, iPad, and iPod Touch now in the iTunes App Store. Live from a disused Dalek spaceship on the planet Tryon, it's Doctor Who, Podshock. The Gallifreyan Embassy presents Doctor Who, Podshock. Episode 323. This is Lewis Trapani, and welcome back to the show. This is going to be a kind of a, perhaps a shorter show than usual, but no less than potent with um, Doctor Who uh, goodness. <laughs> we got a couple interviews lined up for you, and we have another show we're recording in a couple days, so this is a kind of a show to kind of hold you over till we um, get the next one out. Uh, thank you for your uh, for listening and your patience. So I hope you're doing well. It's kind of cold here. We're in the single digits. Um, actually, I think we're, we're now hit the double digits in Fahrenheit uh, for the afternoon, but earlier this morning, it was in the single digits. Um, can't wait till spring, <laughs> at least here in the northern hemisphere. We have about 30 some odd days left until spring, so it can't come quick enough. But usually even when the calendar says it's spring, the weather takes a while to catch up, unfortunately. So, uh, But we still got some time to go. We still, we're still we only um, two-thirds the way through uh, winter, I suppose. So, uh, But I hope wherever you are, you're warm. And oh, and if you're coming back from Gallifrey 1 this weekend, I hope you have a, had a good time in a, in a safe travel uh, back home. If you, if you are home right now as you're listening to this, you could be anywhere. Who, who knows? Uh, we're going to get right into our interviews, but I do want to take um, some time just to acknowledge a, an, an unfortunate passing. Um, we had I had held off on doing this because I was waiting for Ian to be back hosting us with us, but Ian's tied up doing a stage play, and so he's I don't know when he's going to be available to come back on our show again. Uh, but uh, one of our listeners and a participant in Doctor Who Pachak in our live shows, uh, Diane Walling, has um, unfortunately passed away suddenly last month and we're all shocked by this she was um you know um this was unexpected as i said and uh, um we just can't get over it you know but if you go back to um i believe it was 2008 or it might have even been earlier it might have even been the year before or whatever somewhere in that vicinity is when she started participating in the live shows, she was a, a, a listener and um, and a participant when we did the live review shows. Uh, not so much in the last few years, but uh, back then uh, she still stayed in touch. She was a um, a friend of the show, so um, you know it's anyway. I I I, I I'm just 
speechless, as you can see. <laughs> it's, it's just came very unexpectedly, and our um, condolences and um, and thoughts go out to her family and friends and, uh, and and you, if you remember her name, or you, if you're listening um, to some of those older review shows. I, I know some of our listeners do go back and listen to old shows, and um, you can hear her on on those shows. Uh, you know, in that time era. And the reason why I was waiting for Ian to be here before uh, mentioning her passing is because I had thought that, you know, with Ian here, he may have more to say because he and, and, and she got together. I mean, they're, they're, geographically, they were sort of nearby. So they, they uh, became friends and they did conventions together and, and so forth. And um, so I, I thought, you know, it would be nice to have Ian here to say a few words about, um, you know, the, the, their friendship and the time that he had spent with with her going to conventions and such. So, um, yeah, it's a sad loss. It very, it very much is. So, um, I, I, again, condolences and thoughts to her family and friends and and um, and everyone that, that, that knew her. Like I said, this was really um, a big surprise. It was really just one of those things that were just unexpected. All right. Right now it's winter still. Spring is ahead of us, which means uh, after that is summer, and that's when I expected the new Doctor Who series um, will resume. So we're looking forward to that as well, and, and we'll do uh, we'll be back at that time with live review shows. Though we may do some live shows in between now and then uh, that won't be review shows. It might be tackling another topic of discussion. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Um, as I said, we are uh, recording in a couple days a new show of Doctor Who Pachuk, so we should have another episode shortly following this one at some point. As I said, they have started shooting the new series of Doctor Who. They started shooting in Cardiff in January with the Doctor and Clara. Um, they're right now on the 12th of February, they've begun block two of shooting. And returning to the series is the director who directed the Weeping Angels debut back in Blink, Hayley McDonald. The new series will once again be on BBC One in the UK, and it's scheduled for autumn 2015. Now, when they say autumn, I'm I'm assuming it may start at the end of uh you know the end of summer perhaps you know it. Uh, I believe uh, last year it started the end of August somewhere in there and went through September and then through autumn. So. Who knows? Um, or maybe it might be starting later this year. Time will tell, but um, but according to BBC One, it's autumn 2015. But we're all hoping for <laughs> for August or 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 perhaps September. And um, so, but without uh, any further ado, let's go to our interviews that we have lined up. These interviews are courtesy of Chuck Rab of the Chuck Rab Show. And he's uh, gave us permission to share them with it with you with, with share, share them with you, and uh, so they're, they're going back to the eighties, the mid eighties, and I had cleaned up the audio and so that we can present them here for you. The first one is the first one up is Terry Nation, who you may or may not know is a writer and is responsible for the creation of the Daleks and Doctor Who. Uh, he also went on to create the series Blake Seven and um, the Holocaust drama Survivors, and uh, um, unfortunately we lost him in 1997. Uh, he moved to uh, he moved to Los Angeles and was, was writing for uh, did some American production uh, television production work. 
But uh, like I said, he's mostly known for his work, as I said, on Doctor Who with the Daleks because uh, you can't <laughs> – the Daleks are a staple of Doctor Who. And um, and then, like I said, um, Blake Seven and other – if you haven't been exposed to Blake Seven, that's something worth checking out. I know we've spoken about it on the Hitchhiker's Guide to British Sci-Fi. It's a series which really is um, – they've been talking about bringing it back, you know, doing another remake of it or whatever, and it's just – sort of been stuck in limbo for the past few years. I really wish they would come out with um, a Region 1 DVD series of it. They're, they are available on Region 2, and you know as soon as I <laughs> invest in, a, in the Region 2 DVDs, they'll come out with a Region 1 version of it. So I've been holding out on that. But getting back to the interview, this is, um, again, going back to the mid-'80s. I did interview Terry Nation at that time myself. We did it for... Uh, um, for Ambassadors of Life, the newsletter for the Gallifreyan Embassy at that time. And um, I had a good time, um, you know, speaking with him. He's a, an intelligent fellow, and, um, you know, it's it's a sad loss that we did lose him um, when we did. But this interview that you're about to hear is not that interview. This is from the Chuck Rabb Show. So this is Terry Nation, circa mid-1980s. My name is Barb Shushak. My guest today is Terry Nation, writer from The Saint, Doctor Who, Blake's Seven, and MacGyver. Terry, could you tell me how you got into the writing business to begin with? Yeah, you've got about an hour and a half. I can fill you in on that. Um, I started out by wanting to be a comic, would you believe, a stand-up comic. So I left my home in Wales and went to London, as all good stand-up comics do. And I auditioned. I wrote my own material. I auditioned a few times to what is total silence. I mean, you have never heard my jokes receive such ominous silence, which is not good for a comic. And after four or five of those, um, a booker, a friendly booker, said to me, you know, kid, your problem is that the jokes are very good. It's you that's terrible, which is depressing at at that time. And uh, I kind of mulled it over for a while and thought, well, maybe I'll sell the jokes. And I went to see a man called Spike Milligan. And anybody who ever listened to any English radio would know Milligan because he did a wonderful show called The Goon Show. And it had Peter Sellers and Milligan and an actor called Harry Seacombe. And Milligan uh, liked what I did. And before very long, I got a radio show, which was called, let me think, what was it called? It was called All My Eye, half-hour radio comedy. And I did that, and that was it. My... uh, my world started. I was a writer suddenly. That was the question, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, that was the question. With The Saint, how did you enjoy working on that program, and what was your interaction or changes to the character in any way? Well, let me tell you, I loved working on The Saint. It was uh, the first film television series I'd done. And to work with Roger Moore was always a pleasure because he is such a terrific guy. He's one of the few actors that I really liked as a person. And you become very much family when you're doing a show because that's all there is. You work at it seven days a week, or if you don't come around Saturday, then you're going to have lunch with the actors or you're going to go out with them in the evenings, and you, you kind of live together. So I loved, I loved the show. I loved writing it. I loved watching Roger work. And I can't remember the next bit of your question, which was something about the change of the character. Uh, and I don't think I can answer that, because it, it, that was the character. The character was Roger Moore, tagged on to, onto the, the literary scene, as it were. How did you begin writing, and 
What made you create the Daleks? Okay. Uh, boy, you really load those questions, don't you? I mean, let me think if I can answer that. I, had, I claim that I was a writer. I was not a writer of science fiction or of any... I Just a writer, a, a journeyman writer who would write anything that I was hired to write. In the case of the, uh, the Doctor Who... I had done. I was trying to make the break from being a comedy writer to being a dramatic writer, and they don't let you do that easily. They pigeonhole you. And so when I was, my agent ever put me up for a dramatic show. They say, no, 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 no. He's a comic writer. I mean, he writes comedy. I then wrote. I got one science fiction show, a play, and that was quite successful. And then I went back to writing comedy with a wonderful comic called Tony Hancock. And we were out on the road together in a theater in Nottingham, I think. And my agent called and said, the BBC wants you to do this show. It's, it's a new one. It's called Doctor Who, and they're going to put it on at the time when mostly they do children's shows, and there's a reason for that. And I said, how dare they ask me to write for children? I'm, I'm, I'm an important writer. I don't write for kids. Come on. And that night, Hancock and I had a tremendous fight about a piece of material. And I don't know whether I was fired or I quit, but suddenly I was on a train back to London and realized I was out of work. So I called my agent and said, if you haven't said no yet to that show, I'll do it. And I went over and talked to them. And they gave me a brief outline about this crazy guy who went around the universe in this machine. And what they really wanted was it to be a very educational show. They wanted him to go mostly into the past and go to... Pompeii or to the Battle of Waterloo or something that could be educational. And maybe he could go into the future once in a while. I said I'd like to do a futuristic one. And I went away and, and uh, that very week, I think, just as I'd signed the contract for that, another English comic called Eric Sykes said, hey, how would you like to come and write a show for me? I'm going to be doing it on a liner uh, in, the, in the Norwegian fjords and we'll be on a luxury liner and we'll do the show on deck. And So I thought, hey, that's wonderful. But I've got to write this show. So I wrote the first eight Doctor Whos, one a day. I wrote them, each half hour I wrote in a day. And I wrote them all in eight weeks, and then I went off to do the thing in Sweden or Norway. Uh, came back, and the show was going on the air, and I really believed it couldn't succeed. I truly believed this was take the money and fly like a thief, because how the hell can a show like this work? And, of course, it did. Uh, it, it really took me by surprise. I had honestly predicted it would run its 13, which is what it was scheduled for, and that would be the end of it. But before it had been off the air, I was getting, personally getting, fan loads. Van loads. Fan loads is actually better. Fan loads of fan mail. Um, uh, which writers don't. You know, writers are anonymous most of the time. Until the people, Only the people who really watch, like fans, know who the writers are. And so I realized we were onto something pretty good here. And that's how it all kind of ballooned, and I became now a science fiction writer. And it, which is not true, because then I went on to do The Saint, and I was doing The Saint at the same time as I was doing Doctor Who, and I did anything. So it really goes back to the beginning of your question. I maintain I'm a writer of anything you want to hire me to write. I'd like to introduce my co-host now. His name is Joel Spivak, and he is a science fiction specialist. Joel? Good afternoon. Uh, you're one of the few writers that actually conceives uh, a concept like a vehicle or an enemy or a setting of some time, and it actually gets produced into a three-dimensional object. 
and sometimes it even goes further into some kind of great merchandising. How do the uh, three-dimensional objects uh, compare to how you see them when you first conceive of these things in your stories? I, uh, I'm uh, a bane to many directors and producers in that I overwrite my descriptions. So when I described the Dalek in the first instance, it was very clear what I wanted. I mean, there may have been a whole big paragraph about how it looked, how it responded, how it moved, and so on. Uh, so I've, I've got a fairly clear picture. I tend... This sounds awfully pompous, but it's true. I tend to see a screen in my head, and I'm writing down what I see. I'm writing down the pictures that I'm seeing. Does that sound awful? No, that's uh, how you do it, I think. Uh, so so I, I saw the Dalek fairly clearly. Now, I must tell you that at that time, I had no idea that there was a buck to be made out of merchandising. I'd never had any contact with it at all, and really the BBC hadn't either. They had a tiny little department that kind of sold a few licenses off. But suddenly we realized here was a new market that people wanted the toys, they wanted the wallpaper, they wanted the slippers, they wanted Dalek-shaped chocolates, Dalek ice creams, Dalek... Dalek it was, I mean, it was a crazy Dalek time. Everything. Right, I have quite a few in my own collection. You have? Right? Do you have a Dalek collection? Yeah, but my kids kind of destroyed them over the years, you know, because they, uh, they, they lived with Daleks, and they, they... Oh, God, there's the terrible Daleks again, and uh, they were pretty <laughs> bored by the things. So there, there, there did come a time when... When I was trying to develop a new creature, I would try to consciously think, can it be manufactured? Can it be made? Uh, it's no good making something that is, is hard to, to build for a toy manufacturer. I, I, so I got a, I got a little, uh, little what's it, clever about those things. But, of course, nothing ever took off the way that the, the Daleks did. And uh, I remember with great affection that... But there wasn't a schoolyard in Britain or a street where there wasn't a kid with a cardboard box over his head saying, I am a Dalek. <laughs> it was wonderful. It really was a wonderful time. Right. They even made some beautiful uh, Halloween costumes. That's I've right. heard about them. I've never seen them. That's right. Yeah, they had, they had them made in kind of plastic drapes that hung from the shoulders. They, 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 the manufacturers were really very, very inventive about getting things onto the market. Uh, and wherever you went, you saw Daleks. So I, I felt kind of proud of that. Mm -hmm. Today, uh, in your con conception of the Daleks, did they have like some kind of inner meaning, or do they symbolize some kind of character? They symbolized, I think, right at the beginning for me. They absolutely symbolized evil. I wanted them to be not any shades of, of gray. There was nothing good in the Dalek. They were black, black, evil creatures. And I don't know whether it was true. I certainly said it later that they were Nazis, that I had some memory of, of the Nazis. And I was a kid who grew up during the war, so maybe I did. I don't know whether that was true or not. Well, what's I, amazing you said that, and that's why I asked you the question, because in an earlier interview that Chuck Rabb and I did a number of years ago, the first time I ever saw a Doctor Who happened to be a Dalek episode. And to me, I wasn't even sure what this program was about. And it looked like Germany invading England. Yeah, well, and I think even the helmets that came out later in the series, uh, the troopers that were attached to the Daleks at one time had helmets that were very right, Nazi-like. Right, they did. They did. And that's why I asked you that question. Well, I think, I think I, you know, the, after an event, after something has happened that, that took us all by surprise, 
a lot of people read things into it. Uh, I have read very, very bright uh, men have written pieces about the Daleks. Psychiatrists have said, why do the children like them? And said, because it's actually against authority. And they're actually, when the Dalek, the, the Doctor Who is father figure and... Uh, the Daleks are destroying the father figure and so children like and all this kind of rubbish you can read anything into anything <laughs> I don't believe I had a thought in my head other than trying to write a good exciting entertainment that's what I set out to do what I still set out to do is write good exciting entertainments mm -hmm. uh, I think I always come down on the side of the angels you notice the Daleks never win finally mm -hmm. so uh, but I just wanted to write an entertainment and you can read into it anything you want and it's probably true what were some of the other uh, designs of yours that made it into the merchandising field? Well, there's some things from Blake 7 that have come in. I think the, the ship uh, is, is being sold. I know that there are licenses being granted in this country. Uh, I can't honestly... Do you know they did so many crazy well, We love things. merchandise in America. We are the biggest yes, do, do consuming market in the world. I know. Orientals love us. I came when, after I'd been... I live in Los Angeles now. And after I'd been here a year, I wrote to somebody back in England I said gee the Americans have got a lot of things and it, it seems to me to be true you've got a lot of things Terry you have also been the key writer and creator of Blake 7 could you give us a background on the premise of the series yeah it's a show I'm really very proud of and, and one I enjoy um I think I've made clear in, in this interview that I am a commercial writer. I do this for a living. I'm not somebody who is just inspired to write something quickly off the cuff. And so when I set about trying to invent a show, I look to those commercial aspects. What sort of show would I like to be seeing? What would I be watching on television? And I wanted to do a space fiction show because I'd been associated with it. And I suddenly thought, hey, wouldn't it be wonderful to do the Dirty Dozen in space? <laughs> um, and then I thought, no, maybe it's Robin Hood. No, it isn't. It's a combination of Robin Hood and the Dirty Dozen in space. And that's, that's what it's become, in fact. And so we find in the series that Blake, who is a good guy and has been wrongly accused of a crime... Uh, gets mixed up with a band of terrible people, thieves and murderers and rapists and smugglers and bad guys who are all being sent off to a penal planet somewhere out there in the galaxy. And he escapes, and a bunch of these criminals escape with him. And he then has to keep them in control and fight back against the evil Federation. And that's about what the show's about. Yes, and it is now in the process of being distributed here in the States, so everyone's going to have a chance to see it right. sooner or later. I know conventions like this one do show programs from it, episodes, yeah. so people are beginning to catch on and they're enjoying the show. To have it on television would be even better because you get to see it in its proper sequence. Well, I think the, the, the one wonderful thing I know about fans in this country is when they're determined to have something, they will call their local station and keep on insisting that they play it at some time. And I hope that will happen here because it, it is available. It is playing in, I think it's playing in about 40 cities now somewhere, but that's not enough in the United States. We want it on the, I'd love it to go on the same kind of circuit as Doctor Who. Uh, which plays in about 130 cities, I believe. If you give it a bit of time, I believe that's where it's going to wind up. Well, I hope so. And that brings us to your next task, MacGyver, American television this time. That's right, yeah, and very tough it is. I went uh, to MacGyver, went to Paramount and uh, MacGyver, and 
It was my first American series, and I can only tell you it is the toughest thing I've ever encountered. It is the hardest work, the hardest physical, mental work I've ever done. I am no longer associated with it. I mean, I'm still at Paramount, but now developing new projects. But the time I spent on that show was incredibly hard, and I met on this show a number of, of real good old Hollywood pros who'd been around writing for series all their lives, and they staggered out broken men at the, on this show. It was, it was a killer show. But I think the results are really very good. I think they've got a, a really nice show. Uh, Richard Dean Anderson is a terrific actor and a nice man, and I think if, if the show can hang in there for a little while, it will... It will develop a very big following. Yeah, it is a new show, and it's yeah. not doing badly for a brand new program no, it's, at all. No, it's, it's, I think, around about number 40 in the, in the list, and it's done better than that. And for ABC, it certainly is one of their hit shows, because they don't have too many. This That's season. very true. That's right. That's very true. Terry, I would like to thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure meeting you and hearing about your writing. Well, I've enjoyed talking to you. You've made it all very easy and very pleasant. Thank you. And I thank you as well. That was Terry Nation. Once again, that comes to you courtesy of Chuck Rabb of The Chuck Rabb Show. So thank you, Chuck. And it was a great insight on um, on Terry Nation at that time in the um, in the mid-'80s there. Um, MacGyver had just begun in September of 1985, so it uh, was recorded shortly sometime after that. It's, it was a fairly new show at the time of this recording. As far as writing credits go for Doctor Who, Terry Nation was uh, prolific there, especially in the beginning, but his uh, credits include The Daleks, The Keys to Moranis, The Dalek Invasion of Earth, The Chase, Mission to the Unknown, The Daleks Master Plan, uh, about half of those episodes, Planet of the Daleks, Death to the Daleks, Genesis of the Daleks, The Android Invasion, and Destiny of the Daleks. Granted, mostly Dalek stories, but there are a couple there that were non-Dalek stories. His stories are also the basis of two theatrical films, um, starring Peter Cushing as not the Doctor, but as Doctor Who. He's also written other books, and as you had heard in the interview, has uh, worked on other series as well. Before I forget, as we are recording this, it's Christopher Eccleston's birthday. Happy birthday, Christopher Eccleston. He's just turned 51. It's hard to believe it. it was 10 years ago. It's already been 10 years since he was the doctor. Can you believe that? <laughs> I don't know where the time goes. 10 years. Well, happy birthday, Christopher Eccleston. Well, there's another interview coming your way right after this short break. This is Peter Davison, and you're listening to the Doctor Who Podshock. Well, this is the part of the podcast where we do a recommendation for an audio book. And I think we've got an interesting one for you this time. Well, as you know, Audible is the premier provider of digital audio books. Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from in all different genres, including thrillers, romance, business, comedy science fiction, and a whole lot more, including a whole lot of Doctor Who titles. Audible titles will play on your iPhone, Kindle, Android, and more than 500 devices for listening anytime and anywhere. 
And for you, listeners of Doctor Who Podshock, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial, so you have a chance to check out their service. Now, to get your free audiobook, simply go to audibletrial.com slash podshock. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash podshock for your free audiobook. And what are we uh, suggesting or recommending for this time? Well, we did an interview. We had just played an interview right a few minutes ago with um, Terry Nation, who's a writer and the creator of the Daleks. So we're going completely epic with this title. It's Doctor Who, The Daleks' Master Plan. It's written by Terry Nation and Dennis Spooner, narrated by Peter Purves. Peter Purves, who plays Stephen in this story, narrates... These episodes, these are uh, audio from the actual television episodes. Uh, sadly, th- this is a, these are 13 episodes, and unfortunately only two survive in the archives today. This is a rare chance to see in your mind's eye, if you will. Also included is the teaser story, Mission to the Unknown. This, this was broadcast prior to the Daleks' master plan to kind of tease you into the story. Also of note is that this story marks the first appearance of Nicholas Courtney. Uh, he's not playing the Brigadier. He's known as, obviously, any Doctor Who fan knows he's the, he played the Brigadier of Lethbridge Stewart. But here he's uh, playing um, space agent Brett Vaughn. Gene Marsh and Adrian Hill are also in this story as Sarah Kingdom and Katerina. It features the First Doctor, William Hartnell, playing the First Doctor. And, of course... It features the Daleks, who threaten to destroy the fabric of time itself. Let's hear a little bit from the Daleks' master plan. He edges forward. Uh, did you get some of it free? Look at it. Useless. Get me spare, will you? in the ship. As Corey heads back into the rocket, Lowry continues to work. Garvey edges closer, keeping the ship between him and the two other men, so that he cannot be seen. Oh, it's no good, Corey. You needn't bother with a spell. Just not going to be able to fix it. Bent over his work, Lowry is defenseless as Garvey raises his gun to fire. But it is Garvey who topples to the ground. Kick! Kick! Caught in the blast of Mark Corey's ray gun. Lowry kneels beside Garvey, cradling his head. The fallen man writhes with pain and then lies still. Kill him. You killed Jeff. It was him or you. Didn't give him a chance. Just shut him down like an animal. You just shut him down. Lowry launches himself at Corey, trying to strangle him. Corey punches him in the stomach. Lowry reels back, shocked and gasping, as Corey kneels down beside Garvey's body. He makes a cursory examination of the head and neck, and then, with a grunt of recognition, removes a long thorn embedded in the flesh just below the ear. A Varga thorn. A Varga? Careful, don't prick yourself with it. Or you'll end up the way Garvey is. I'd have to kill you. What do you mean? Let's get back into the ship. What about his personal effects? Chris All Garvey. right. But hurry up. Lowry collects Garvey's belongings, then he and Corey disappear into the rocket ship, the door sliding shut behind them. Garvey lies on the ground where he fell, apparently dead. After a moment or two, however, the fingers of one hand begin to twitch and clench, the movement becoming more pronounced and violent. 
As the hand twists and turns, long white hair can be seen to be covering its back. And amongst the hair, a multitude of spiny Varga thorns are growing. I didn't intend to tell you anything. But since we're stuck on this planet and Garvey's dead, there are some facts that you're entitled to know. Yeah. Jeff Garvey's dead. And we weaved through together for the last ten years. And now he's dead, and you killed him. You better explain that fact. I'll make it good. Sit down and take a look at this. Corey hands Lowry his ID. I'm out of know. Space Security Service. Licensed to kill. That's right. They'll count me out. This other document gives me the authority to enlist the aid of any person, civil or military. You were just enlisted. From now on, Lowry, you can take your orders from me. Yeah, all right, all right. But I don't fully understand. Better fill in a few details. All right. I suppose you've heard of the Daleks. The Daleks invaded Earth a thousand years ago. That's right. Well, they haven't been active in our galaxy for some time now, but that doesn't mean they've exactly been sitting around. In the last 500 years, they've gained control of over 70 planets in Ninth Galactic System, and of 40 more in the constellation of Miros. Can't see why that should concern us. I mean, they're both millions of light years away from our galaxy. Hmm, that's what we all thought. But about a week ago, we had a report from the captain of a space freighter. His navigator spotted a, a spaceship of a type never before used in our system. He saw it only for a second, but he gave us a good description. So? What he described was a Dalek spaceship. <laughs> Outside the ship, Garvey's feet and legs are twitching with life, and from the waist up, his body is covered in long white spines. All resemblance to the human that was once Garvey is disappearing. He's becoming a Varga. Inside, Corey tries to make contact with the rendezvous ship. Freighter XN2, Freighter XN2, come in please. Come in, please. Can you make it work? It's got to work. There may be damage to the crash. We must keep on trying. Detect the link pulses? I know what I'm doing. Right, all right, so the link pulses work. There could be something else wrong with it. What about the vergometer? Have you tested that? Without that, you'd never break through the atmosphere. How can I possibly test that? We're just going to take a chance that it hasn't been damaged. Freighter XM2, Freighter XM2, come in, please. Come in, please. It's useless. Are you sure we can't repair this ship? Well, there's not a chance. It's hot. So you think that the Daleks have established some sort of base here, is that it? It could be. This is the most hostile planet in the universe. People from other civilizations avoid it. I suddenly had a hunch that this might make an ideal place for any secret preparations that the Daleks wanted to make. That's why we brought the ship down here. Did you tell anybody else about this hunch of yours? No one. Not even your commander. <laughs> I just asked for a couple of men and a small rocket. I didn't even tell him what for. Then why are you telling me? Because of this. A thorn from a Varga plant. A thing part animal, part vegetable. Looks like a cactus. The poison attacks the brain. Rational thought is replaced by an overwhelming desire to kill. Eventually, the poison seeps through the system, and the victim is gradually transformed into a Varga. 
And what's that got to do with the Daleks? The only place in the universe where Vargas grow naturally is on the Daleks' own planet, Scaro. If the Vargas are here, the Daleks are too. And there you have it. A little sampling of the Daleks' master plan. This could be your selection, or you could choose something other than this, something it doesn't even have to be Doctor Who. You could choose whatever you like that Audible has to offer as a free selection. To download your free audiobook, simply go to audibletrial.com slash podchalk. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash podchalk for your free audiobook. As always, you could find links to the offer on our website at podchalk.net as well. Our next interview is Mark Strickson. You may know him as Vizsla Turlo, though most will probably just know him as Turlo in Doctor Who. He played the character from uh, the episode Mordron Undead up until Planet of Fire, and he also made a cameo as Turlo in the Caves of Androzani, which was the final episode of The Fifth Doctor, played by Peter Davison. So he was, uh, as... Um, you probably can surmise he was a companion during the Peter Davison era of Doctor Who, the fifth Doctor. Uh, you may have also seen him in a Christmas Carol, a U.S. production from 1984 that starred George C. Scott as Ebenezer Scrooge, and he played the younger version of Scrooge in that. And this interview takes place around that time in the mid-'80s, and I also had the privilege of interviewing him at that time, too, which um, we had on an earlier Doctor Who Podchuck, we had that interview. Uh, I don't recall which Doctor Who Podchuck number that is, but it's a much earlier show, which we had that interview. So this takes place at that same time. This is uh, via courtesy Chuck Rabb from the Chuck Rabb Show. So once again, we are um, setting our TARDIS to the mid-80s for this interview with Mark Strickson, fairly fresh off being off of Doctor Who. And he talks about his time there on the show, as well as other work that he's doing. My name is Barb Shushuk. I am the associate producer. Mark Strickson has played the role of Turlow on Doctor Who, the BBC's long-running science fiction program. Mark, what was it like for you to take part in a program that has endured so many years? It launched you immediately whilst the program was on um, into a position which very few programmes doing that walking down the street, people knew who you were. You've really got to be on a series for that to be the case. Um, oddly enough, in between, it's shown in two parts, Doctor Who. As soon as the break comes, nobody knows who the hell you are again. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, yeah, it's a bit of a crusher for the ego. You have to keep these things in proportion. Um, it took a little bit of getting used to, but it was quite pleasant. The Doctor's companions are important to the viewers because they help to tell the story. They ask all the questions. What is it, Doctor? Where are we, Doctor? What's happening, Doctor? How do you approach portraying Turlo within those limits? With great difficulty. Um, I used a trick, really, which it was very naughty of me, an actor's trick. When you take one of those questions, like, what's happening, Doctor? You can either do it, what's happening, Doctor? Or you can imply you know the answer, i.e., what's happening, Doctor? I'm implying you have, you know what's happening, and it's a rhetorical question. 
I was in terrible trouble for doing this. <laughs> because it meant when Peter and I had a conversation, nobody was talking to the other one. We were having a rhetorical conversation. <laughs> um, it was a problem. Um, my character was not brought in as, as the usual assistant. It was brought in as, as a regular, long-running character. In many ways, it didn't work. In some ways, I think it did. It was a useful experimental time for the programme. Um, I think the programme's now, having learned those lessons, has settled down and is is in a better format with the Doctor and the one female assistant. It worked at the beginning of the programme um, 20 years ago, and it's still as good a combination now. Do you feel that a male companion is maybe not always the best choice, and uh, there um, have been more females? Well, no, of course it's much better to have a female companion, because essentially what I talk about it in England as, as, a, as, a, as a children's programme, um, which it is in England, very much so. Um, the little girls want somebody to identify as do the little boys, but the little boys have got the doctor. Um, right. The little girls haven't got anybody unless there's a female assistant. So that's that's why it's necessary to have a female assistant. Can you compare the role of Turlo to, say, a character you've played in Celebration or Angels? Um, oh, indeed, a lot of other things. <laughs> um, no, um, Doctor Who is a very, very specific programme. Um, I do tend, or I did tend, and it's not quite so true now, I'm an old person. To <laughs> me, it's only two and a half years ago, but your face changes in two and a half years, and particularly men are still growing around my time. I'm 26 now. Um, I'll still keep filling out until I'm about 30. I am much bigger now than I was when I did Doctor Who. At that time, I was in the business of playing nasty little tykes because my face was very thin on the screen, and I looked very gaunt and, and muscular. On, on, on screen and um, it, yes it was very similar to the parts I'd been playing it was, it was an evil villain part the problem came when he didn't have to be evil and he went into a sort of wishy-washy area where he wasn't good or bad merely tied up <laughs> you're also a musician mm. and you write and you compose have you had an opportunity to use your musicianship within any of your roles? When I first left the Royal Academy, RADA, Royal Academy Dramatic Art, I spent two and a half years touring on a pair of narrowboats on the waterways of England, um, doing shows about the waterways, but more essentially about the quality of life that is being lost in England, and perhaps even more so in America, certainly in urban America. There, I had to write all the music, and indeed sang and played the guitar and whatever, so that, that was very important for that job. Since then, I haven't used it. I am about to do a play um, called The Shepherd's Life, based on a book by W.H. Hudson, a very famous Victorian rural book about the shepherds on Salisbury Plain, where I do a lot of singing and also play the concertina um, as a sort of narrator character, only for the second time. Um, I don't do musicals because I haven't got one of those show voices. I've got a very nice voice for folk music, but I haven't got a voice that would go down in the London Palladium, and I don't dance particularly well. Um, it's not my ball game. It's not what I can do well. I'm essentially a trained musician. I played the French horn as my instrument. And I know, because I'm a trained musician, there are a hell of a lot of actors and actresses who are downside better in musicals than me, so I don't even bother auditioning for them. Have you ever thought about a recording contract? Mm-mm. No, I mean, I decided to become an actor, not a musician, and then I made this very, very... It was a very important decision for me at one point. Um, and since then, perhaps, I've even shied away from music more than somebody might normally do. Um, I do very much pay it down and never mention it um, in the context of my work in Great Britain. 
And it doesn't actually particularly interest me that much. I mean, I like classical music. I don't like popular music. And so uh, what's the point of having a recording contract when I need to be a part of the symphony orchestra? <laughs> I don't, I'm not interested in pop music at all. Um, I like some pop music. It's not a snobbery thing. I was brought up by in a classically trained background. My father was a classical musician. All my memories are to the classical music. Certain parts of my life I identified with different pieces as I grew up. Um, it, that's purely what it is. It's not a snobbish thing at all. It's, it's what turns me on. With your writing, you had to already write some music. Mm. Would you be interested in writing, say, scripts for a film or for a TV series? Oh, yes, I would, if I got anything to write about. Um, it doesn't stop most people, of course. <laughs> I mean, the television is that awful box in the corner which has to have a massive amount of material written for it. And basically, I know that I could sit down tomorrow and write a script that will be on in six months. But I would know that it was just as bad as all the other stuff that's on there. I don't want to write anything that's even mediocre it would go in the waste paper bin. I mean, but then if everybody was like me, nobody would have anything to read <laughs> and there wouldn't be any television. It's just, it, it, it's a thing with me. I wouldn't be happy unless I was writing something good. I did used to write until I decided I hadn't really got anything to say, which is the worst possible reason for stopping writing because it's a technique which you need to practice. Perhaps one day when I get um, a little more motivated than I am at the moment, I'll, I'll go back to it. What about the other aspects of your acting? Would you be interested in getting into directing or producing No, not at all. I'm an actor. Um, I happen to think that it's an unfashionable thing to think in some ways. It's just as difficult to be an actor as anything else. Um, I don't feel because I have a good brain that I need to direct people. I don't have to prove that I've got a brain by directing. I think acting is a very, very difficult skill. And certainly at the age of 26, you shouldn't be thinking of dying, but diversifying. I've got a lot to learn about acting. <laughs> Are there any types of roles that you would like to see yourself get involved with in the future? Yes, I would love to do comedy. Um, my heroes, apart from Laurence Olivier. <laughs> if you're listening, Larry, I love you too. Um, uh, Tony Hancock, a comedian who was very famous in England more for his radio work, sadly committed suicide. He's one of my heroes. My other heroes are Phil Silvers and Bill Cosby. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think they're wonderful. For the same reason, um, I think in England we do stage work much better. And I think we actually make serious films much better. Um, Americans are much better generally at films, and my goodness, they're good at comedy. I love American comedy. When I come over here, I actually sit and watch the television. I sit there watching for hours when I've got some time off, is watching your comedy programmes. I don't know why, but even the bad ones are good. <laughs> the standard of acting is very, very high on them. Um, it's just something you happen to be able to do very well. And actually, I'm not a terribly serious person. And comedy is so lovely. It's so lovely to hear people laugh. If you're doing tragedy or whatever, not tragedy is the wrong word, but if you're doing a serious play, it's very difficult to judge off a silence when you get a good belly laugh going through a theatre. The most wonderful thing in the world. It's very, very satisfying. And that's that. It makes you feel at the end of the night very warm. You feel you've helped people, cheered them up, got them out of themselves for a few hours. But of course, because you know, I'm sort of relatively intelligent, people think I'm a terribly serious young man, so therefore I don't ever get cast in comedy. Which is, which is, of course, a nonsense because, I mean, a lot of the great comedians, it, it's a technical skill as any other sort of acting is. It, it needs to be studied, and the timing needs to be studied. Um, it's a serious business, Colin. It would have to be, because your audience is relying on you to make them laugh. They walk in and they don't expect to go out without mm. laughing. You're on right. the line with that. Particularly serious, you don't make them laugh. <laughs> <laughs> At least you can be bad in a, in a 
in a straight place, so to speak, and never know it. <laughs> but if no one's laughing, you know no you're not laughing. doing yeah, so well. No, yeah, really, yeah. Really making a mess of things. And you honestly believe that the Americans are better at comedy than yes, the I English? Do. Yes, I do. I have no explanation for it. <laughs> and I'm sure many, many people would disagree with me, but that's from far. For what it's worth is my opinion. Which is worth a lot. Who cares? <laughs> As you look back on what you have done so far, uh, were there any performances you've done that you were particularly fond of? Now, this can span stage or film. No, I've never really done anything that I was that I actually felt satisfied with or even particularly enjoyed. Um, everything I've done has had its limitations. I've never done a part that I wanted to do. I mean, even the two plays I'm about to do now... Um, the Shepherd's Life is a very nice little piece. I mean, it's not a really a piece of theatre at all. It's a piece of entertainment, drama, documentary entertainment. And, I mean, you know, um, like Oswald and Ibsen's Ghosts. I mean, Oswald can't concentrate on his painting because he's got hereditary clap. I mean, it's not... <sighs> terribly difficult to do Ibsen, Chekhov. It's bad to bracket them together, but I mean, I think they've got a lot of humour in them again. And I think if you play them straight, which unfortunately is often the fashion the, at the moment, I think you're really you're really going very wrong. Um, it isn't. It cannot be a serious and real situation. You have to play it stylistically. Unfortunately, I'm in the position where I know most actors don't feel like that, so I can't actually do that in the context of a production because it wouldn't it would ruin the um, the whole because I would be acting in a different style to other people um, so there you are I mean there's two two things um, that I mean I'm about to do which is quite quite good work if you like to put it like that but um, I already know before I do it it's limitations what about preparing for your parts you... um, as far as television is concerned I think you need very little preparation um, for certainly again to qualify that for the sort of work I've done um, okay. Um, for example, the programs that I've done, apart from Doctor Who, are all to do with very real situations, i.e. working in an ambulance department in Birmingham, um, being uh, a thug in the north of England, being a copper um, as a policeman, being a policeman. Um, my preparation for parts like that is to talk to people in my daily life, go around with my eyes open and be a sympathetic person to other people, because you then, then you have a whole fund, a library of information um, I'm a terrible watcher of people and my wife's an actress we, we're terrible we go out and we don't talk to each other and people <laughs> we don't get on and it's just we, 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 in fact it, I mean it's potentially quite embarrassing we just look at other people and I sometimes have to tell my wife off because she's a bit more obvious about it than I am <laughs> but there that's your library that's your information so you don't need you should have a sort of a, a file you can bring out to play that sort of character excuse me not to who is slightly different that's total fantasy I mean it's not reality at all it's a comic strip sort of thing I'm rattling good fun, but again, it's not the deepest thing in the world to say, oh, gosh, Doctor, look, there's a big green sign monster coming down the corridor. Help, help. <laughs> um, you don't really need to do a lot of character work to be able to do that convincing. <laughs> I mean, I've done a lot of background reading about the first play that I'm doing at Salisbury. It's different in the theatre. You've got to, because it's a much more... You have to create a much more complete character. You're on stage for three hours at a row. So you have to create a much more of a character. And also, it's, of course, far better material than anything I've done if you were offered a part in a comedy film mm. right now, how would you approach doing that? You've not done one. You've wanted to do one. Yeah. How would you feel about that right now? Well, it would, of course, depend on the part. I would love to do any comedy. Um, that's really my answer to your question. It would depend on the part, how I approached it. 
I would approach it by looking at the lines, working out where the laughs should come and working out the timing. Because if you were talking about a film on television, that's even more difficult than doing it in the stage because you have to leave, unless you've got a live audience, time for your laughs. Even when you're doing a film. <laughs> right. If you don't leave time, then they can't hear, when the laugh comes, they can't hear the next line. Exactly. You've got to mark in your script L for laugh <laughs> and react as if there was a laugh. It's a highly technical skill comedy, which is one of the reasons it attracts me. I'm, I am a technician. Um, as well as, uh, I mean, I hope I'm very emotional as well, but in essence, you can't be every night. I mean, if you're playing a character, for example, like Richard III, you can't go around actually murdering people in your mind every night because you wear yourself out. You couldn't do a matinee and evening performance. You have to rely on technique occasionally to get you through. Um, have a rest for a quarter and relax. Turn on to technique. It's hardly any difference. Save your emotional energy for the moments where it's really needed in a play um, has that answered your question I've wondered rather yes it has <laughs> yes how would I say yes it has yeah. you have had also some opportunities to work in cabaret hmm. how do you feel about doing that I, would, I wouldn't do it anymore at all I've totally given it up it's very very hard work and it's not something I think I'm particularly good at <laughs> and that's that and that's that yeah. I mean, in the context of doing Doctor Who things, yes, I would do a cabaret and I would do something. Perhaps very different to the things I've done before. Um, I mean, things I've done before being sort of songs and whatever, sort of things. I mean, you know, I might play a movie with a sort of Hawking Jet or something. Um, the show, the real, the, the other side of Mark Strickland, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> do a cooking demonstration, no, <laughs> too messy. Uh, explain that, one of my, um, my passions is cooking. I love cooking. I'm very fat at the moment. I've just come back from France. I've got a little bit of a diet. I had to diet a burger for lunch today. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, I, no, I, it's not something that attracts me at all. When you have the time. Having said that, I did. The reason for that, I now will be honest, is I did a very big cabaret in, in England. And I thought fell flat on my face, so to speak, and it, and it frightened me. I don't. And I'm an actor. I'm not a cabaret artist. And um, cabaret artists, you all hear them say, "Oh, well, I had a terrible night that night." As an actor, I can't actually cope with a terrible night doing cabaret um, because I can't. I've got no comeback. I haven't got the confidence to do it. So that's why. When you're away from work, what is it that you do to relax? Well, I mean, this, I mean, so I, I cook. I, my wife and I sort of about seven o'clock at night, you sometimes a bit earlier, depending on how bad our nerves are in the day, <laughs> sit down and have a whacking great gin and fruit juice at about seven o'clock. And then we go down and cook the supper. I do the cooking and she does the donkey work doing the vegetables and things. She's my sort of assistant. Um, I mean, I do, all, I, do all the sort of, I do all the cooking at home. Um, I think because I love cooking. I find it very relaxing. And so then we have a really nice meal and go and have another drink and... Puffle off to our little cots and go to bed. <laughs> the other way I relax is in the morning. I have a, 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 a spring spaniel dog, and we live on the south coast of England next to a national park and bird sanctuary. I walk the dog for a couple of hours every morning, um, look at the sea, and realise that I'm really a very tiny person. It doesn't really matter if I'm miserable or happy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so cheer up, you know. <laughs> okay, well, I want to thank you for coming to see us today. My pleasure, my pleasure. And we will sign off. This is the Chuck Rapp Show. My name is Barb Shushuk. My guest has been Mark Strickson, English actor, stage performer.
And indeed, before you sign off, I should point out the only other thing I've been in America, if anybody else is one who doesn't watch Doctor Who listen, is listening to this, is maybe last Christmas you saw a film of The Christmas Carol which starred George C. Scott. And I played the young Scrooge in that, the young George C. Scott. So for all of you who don't, never watched Doctor Who and don't know what it's about, which is the thing I'm best known for, you might have watched that last Christmas. I did see that. If you did, I hope you enjoyed it. Yes, and, I did. Um, I hope I get the opportunity to do more stuff that you see over here. It's been nice talking to you. Thank you. Once again, this interview comes to you courtesy of Chuck Rabb of The Chuck Rabb Show, and kudos to you, Chuck, for making it available to our listeners to rebroadcast on this show on Doctor Who Podshock. That was Mark Strickson, of course. Again, this dates back to the mid-1980s, and uh, he did talk about The Christmas Carol, which was a 1984 production, stars George C. Scott, so if you ever have a chance, if they ever repeat it during the holidays, you could check that out and see uh, Mark Strickson playing another character other than Turlo in Doctor Who. Um, he's done other work as well. I don't mean to imply that's the only things he's done, but I surely um, our listeners probably know him best as Turlo in Doctor Who. Uh, he eventually um, went to Australia and studied zoology. And I, if I'm trying to remember, I think we might have spoke about his interest in, zoo- in zoology in our interview at that time. I don't remember. I could be mistaken. And he lives in New Zealand now. So he's uh, he's directed some wildlife programs with one notable person, Steve Irwin, the late Steve Irwin, uh, he worked with on on um, on those programs. So again, that's Mark Strickson, and um, I hope you enjoyed both of those interviews. I thought they were both very interesting. As I said, we are having another Dr. Pacha coming to you on the heels of this episode, more or less, and... Uh, that's coming to you shortly. We're going to be recording that soon. So something to look forward to there. Thank you all Dr. Who supporting subscribers that made this episode and all episodes possible. We can't do it without you. If you'd like to become a supporting subscriber, it, you can do so by going to pachak.net or arttrap.com and you'll find a link there, a banner there on how to become a supporting subscriber. Uh, it really helps the show a lot and it keeps us going. So uh, thank you to all our supporting subscribers for making a difference and making us able to bring this episode and all Talk to Podshock episodes to you on a regular basis. So that's going to sign, that's going to, um, well, I was going to say that's going to sign sign me off. That's going to wrap up the show here. Uh, we'll see you next time on Doctor Who Podshock. Until then, cheers, everyone. You have been listening to Doctor Who Podshock, presented to you by the fan-run GallifreyNMC.org. Doctor Who is owned and trademarked by the BBC. Doctor Who Podshock is not affiliated with the BBC in any way. Doctor Who Podshock theme music by Jeff Smith at thejeffsmith.com. This has been a production of Art Trap Productions and has been made possible by supporting subscribers and donations from listeners like you. This podcast is also supported by the Podchuck Podcast Companion app now in the iTunes App Store. Visit ArtTrap.com for more information on this and other podcasts. Shock to you, Podchuck! Ah, ah.